Lord, would you help us to wait for you through all the storms in our life, Lord, to, as we're waiting through the night, would you help us to rely on your word, your promises, to, to trust you? Lord, I just pray that you would help us to see the things that you have for us in Exodus 1 and 2, and I pray that you would just let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So here we are at the beginning of our study of Exodus, and I hope you had a wonderful time digging into chapters one and two. I know it was a really long lesson. So be encouraged, this week we have a smaller passage, all right? But these chapters, I felt it was important for us to just to set the stage historically. Where are we? Where are the people of, of Israel? They're in Egypt here. And so after these first initial seven verses of Exodus 1, we see that there's a new government. We see that there's increased fear. There's suspicion. There's hatred leading to oppression and even genocide. But it's all a part of God's providential plan. God knew. He knew what the Israelites were going through. And God was about to reveal himself to them as their redeemer, that he is mighty to save. So he would save them. He would make them a people, even as he had preserved them in Egypt as foreigners for generations. And I was talking with Jean before class how the fact that, you know, we today don't know any Hittites or, right, Philistines or, you know, those people have disappeared. But God preserved his people through his grace, through his mercy. They, and so my aim this morning is that you would trust our faithful God who hears, remembers, sees, and knows. And you have this on your, uh, your handout this morning. I just want you to see the Lord in these chapters. And so our outline this morning is growing in population, and the point is that God is the one who grows his people. The people are groaning under persecution, but God hears and God knows. There's a new game plan, all right? Plan B, a new strategy, genocide. But God's people, they fear God and not the king. And then God has a plan for a deliverer, Moses points to Jesus, and the big point is God hears Israel's groanings. He is our redeemer. So let's start with number one. All right, we're going to read Exodus 1, 1 through 7. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons, Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful. They increased greatly. They multiplied and they grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. So here in these verses, we see the faithfulness of Yahweh highlighted. He always keeps his promises, he keeps his word, and he accomplishes his purposes in his time. Remember, he had commanded Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth so that they would have more. 
of God's image bearers on the earth. God would be glorified, he would be known. Psalm 72, eight and nine exclaims, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. That's why he wants the earth filled with his image bearers, is to fill the earth with his glory. Now the fruitfulness and the growth of God's people is a testimony to God's faithfulness and God's blessing on his people. I also want to read Psalm 105 to you, verses 23 through 25. Then Israel came to Egypt, Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham, and the Lord made his people very fruitful and made them stronger than their foes, and he turned their hearts to hate his people, to deal craftily with his servants. Did you hear the words of purpose here? Did you see this? The Lord, what? He made his people very fruitful, and he made them stronger than their foes. That's, that's God's doing. That's Yahweh's doing. But do you see what the next verse says? What else did he do? He turned their hearts to hate his people, to deal craftily with his servants. All right, whose hearts is it here? If you look here, it's their foes, right? It's their hearts that were going to hate God's people, right? God's people. Now, the word providence, I've used that a couple of times. I wanted to define that. According to John Piper, and let me show you this, just this little book that just came out. Have you seen his little book? Look at, look at the, look. <laughs> it's simply called Providence, all right? And this book is filled with scripture from beginning to end where he has highlighted ways that God has moved in providential ways. And the way he defines providence is three words, okay? Not a long definition. God's purposeful sovereignty. And just, I want to read you, this is the opening chapter, or opening paragraph in chapter one of his book. And he says, this is what is divine providence. The reason this book is about the providence of God rather than the sovereignty of God is that the term sovereignty does not contain the idea of purposeful action, but the term providence does. Sovereignty focuses on God's right and power to do all that he wills, but in itself, it doesn't express any design or goal. Of course, God's sovereignty is purposeful. It does have design, it does pursue a goal, but we know this not simply because God is sovereign, but because he is wise, and because the Bible portrays him as having purposes in all he does. Isaiah 46.10, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. So the focus of this book is on God's sovereignty considered not simply as powerful, but as purposeful. Historically, the term providence has been used as shorthand for this more specific focus. So the whole book is about it. Now, one thing I'll tell you is that what John Piper does in his books is he has an index that's based on scripture. So you could look up virtually any scripture in your Bible and it'll point you to the page in the book where he talks about that scripture. And so it's a very helpful resource for you. It's not one, you might look at this and say, I could never read a book that size from cover to cover, but it's a good resource. And I think the book's, it's called Providence. 
The word providence is not in the Bible. And so that's why he wrote a book on providence to explain how he sees it throughout the whole Bible. Okay, we have words like God is mighty, he's strong to save, he's sovereign, he's the ruler, he's the king. There's all these things that we see, but they're, they're said in different ways throughout scripture from Genesis to Revelation. And so what John Piper has done is he's taken those scriptures and he's put them here to see how we see God's purposes unfolding. And so I just thought this would be a helpful resource for you. There's a lot of stuff on Exodus in here, so I might quote him at another time. So do you remember what Joseph said to his brothers back in Genesis 50? Remember, they were, they were quaking, they were, they were afraid, right? What's Joseph gonna do to us now that our father has died? And what does he say? Yes, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. He didn't just see what was going on and say, oh, I think I'll use it, I'm gonna turn that for my purposes, but no, God planned it. He, it, was, it, was, it was for their good. That's, that's here what this verse is saying is God did this. God turned the hearts of the Egyptians against the Israelites for his sovereign purposes. All right, it's important to understand that what God told Abraham back in Genesis 15 is now playing out. And we talked about that last week in our introduction. While Joseph served in his capacity in Egypt, the Pharaoh was glad to have him and his extended family. But as the people grew exponentially, I thought back to how God had called Abraham in Exodus 12. Remember, he said, I will bless those who bless you. But there was a flip side of that promise. What, what is he gonna do to those that don't honor? Yes, he's gonna curse them, he's gonna bring judgment. And that is something we're gonna see unfolding in the rest of Exodus here. Because up to this point, the leadership in Egypt had blessed the people of Israel, had they not? They gave them best land, and they were fruitful. They, they, were, they were nourished, they flourished in Egypt. But now, there's a turn in the leadership, and they start putting heavy burdens. They, they, they bring them into slavery. So. It's also important to note that the land of Egypt, even though they flourished there and they had the best land, it wasn't the promised land, okay? So God's design is to get them back to the promised land. And so he's working his will here and he's, he's keeping a people for himself. But now this new king comes. So we're gonna read verses eight through 14. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph and he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters task over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service and in all kinds of work in the field and in all their work they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. The people find their situation upside down here. And they had experienced peace, prosperity, even privilege as Israelites. But 
you know, as Joseph was promoted to even second in command in the nation, but now a new regime is in power and things take a turn. And so the, the king was so concerned for his security with all these vast numbers of Israelites living in Egypt. And so he begins to hate them. He implements what I'm calling plan A, and that is oppressing the people. He turns them into his slave workforce here. All right, they're building new cities. The king was hoping that maybe they would go away. They would be too exhausted to even come home and have children. All right, that's, that's the plan, is if I work them hard enough, they'll stop multiplying, right? And remember, again, that God had told Abraham that this was going to happen. In Genesis 15, the Lord said to Abraham, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that's not there, and they will be, what, servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But what does he say then? But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. So this new king does not realize the implications of cursing those who curse the people of Israel, all right? He doesn't realize that judgment is gonna come on his head. But judgment was coming. Our sovereign God was in control, and the people were, what was happening to them back in Egypt? They were still growing. You know, even though he was oppressing them and making them work hard, they were still growing, even as they were groaning under persecution. Nothing was going to thwart God's plans. So now the king needs to move, move to plan B. This is where he moves from slavery to slaughter. All right, let's read verses 15 through 22. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it's a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God, right? And did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. But let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied, and they grew very strong. Do you see that language again? Multiplied, grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all of his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. We see here that this is not the, it's actually, you know, not the only time in history that this has happened to the people of Israel. Anti-Semitism is alive even today. You know, it was back in the days of the Holocaust and it, and it, and it is even now as, you know, terrorist attacks, you know, strike in Israel. So what should our, what should we do about that today? Well, we should pray, shouldn't we? We should pray for the people of God, we should pray for the persecuted church. We should keep sharing the gospel, even with the, pe the people of Israel, the Jewish people. We should not be afraid to share the gospel, and we should minister in practical ways. But the other thing we should do is we should expect persecution. You know, we are in an age in our culture when maybe we have been blessed here to experience freedom, and we thank God for that, but the day is coming when we might not have the same freedom to worship as we have. We should expect hostility. Jesus said that we will be hated for his namesake, 
and that through many tri tribulations we will enter the kingdom of God. So apparently what happens here in this section is that Pharaoh goes to these two midwives and he might have gone privately to them uh, fearing that there would be an uprising amongst the Hebrew people, like, what, you're gonna kill our, our, our baby boys? No, because the people were so numerous, he was already afraid of them, right? So he thought, if I could go privately to these midwives and have them do the dirty work for me, it'll save my face. I won't look like the genocidal monster that I am. Is that, that's what he's doing, right? Now, he, because he could, think about it, he could have gone like Pharaoh did, or uh, like, like Herod did, right? Herod, you know, he had an, an edict to kill all the, baby, the boys that were under two at the time of Christ, to kill Jesus. He could have just done that, but I think he might have been a little afraid of how he would look amongst his own people and with the people of, of Israel. So he, he tries this approach first. So why target the boys? You know, he says here, he says, if it's a son, you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, she shall live. I think our best clue is back in verse 10. If you look back at verse 10, it says, if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. All right, so he wanted to wipe out future warriors. And then if there was a surplus of girls, they could be sold you know, as domestic servants or slaves, and essentially then the, the Hebrew race would just disappear, right, if he could kill all the boys. So, but it's interesting here that he says, if it's a daughter, she shall live. It's interesting that daughters aren't seen as a threat. But what does this chapter highlight? How many women intervened to save Moses? There's five women here. Okay, there's the two midwives, because if the midwife was there when Moses was born and, and they obeyed the order to kill him, he would have been gone then, all right? So there's two midwives, there's Moses' mother, there's Moses' sister, and there's Pharaoh's daughter. Five women intervene to save Moses. I mean, isn't this a sweet providence of God that he would turn the, 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 ta the table here? And it's also interesting that it's only the two midwives that are named. Did you notice that? Okay, it's remarkable. We don't know the king's name. Pharaoh is not his name. It's kind of like saying White House instead of saying President Biden. Okay, Pharaoh is just kind of a generic name. The only ones in this chapter who are named are those who feared God. Okay, those that feared God are the ones that are named. Okay, we have Shifra and we have Pua, all right, that are named. Later, we do na learn the names of Moses' mother and sister, Jochebed and Miriam. But, okay, talk a little bit about fearing God rather than man. Pharaoh, when he confronted the uh, midwives, he says, why have you done this and let the male children live? And I just wanna note a couple things about their, their answer. The first thing they say is, well, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. That's kind of a bold statement, isn't it? It's kind of an insult. It's like a racial slur. You know, he's saying, well, the, the Hebrew women aren't like yours. I mean, we're strong. We're self-sufficient. You need help giving birth, but we're strong, you know? And so I think that, that was a courageous thing for them to say. But then note, they also say, um, they say, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. And I thought, well, we know that babies sometimes come before they're planned, right? I mean, I, I know a woman who's in the evening class who had a baby in her bathtub a couple years ago. 
because she didn't realize she was in labor and all of a sudden, baby was just there. So we know that that happens. That was not my experience. <laughs> I had many hours. <laughs> I can identify more with the, you know, the groanings, you know. <laughs> um, but it, it seems that maybe Pharaoh didn't know a lot about labor and delivery. You know, he, he belie- I think he believed him, you know. Um, but the thing, the thing here is that they did, they did not obey his order. They, 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 they said, no, but we're not going to do this. And so the passage really isn't about, oh, should we lie or should we not lie? It's, you know, it's about obeying God rather than obeying man. And protecting lives, innocent lives, is more important than obeying the king here. And Acts 5.29 is a verse that we recently had in our sermon series on Acts. It says, we must obey God rather than man. And our text says that they're praised for their actions, right? So the first way they're praised here is that we know their names, right? They were named. We know that they were named Shifra and Pua. Okay, that's the first honoring thing. And then in verse 17, it says that they, they feared God, right? And it says that God dwelt well with the midwives. You see that? All right, and then it says again that they feared God and he gave them families. Okay, they have a reward, all right? So what does it mean to fear God? Well, at the bare minimum, it believes, you believe that there is a God, right? And that he's watching us all the time, that he knows, even if no one else is. But we believe his word, we love Jesus, and that means that even though the world thinks that we're crazy or cruel, need to be canceled, but when we fear God we, and we fear his presence, we know that his purposes outweigh them all, all right, all others, and we will stand strong giving the, you know, with the courage that the Holy Spirit gives us to stand strong in our culture for what difficult choices we may have to make, what is right versus what is convenient. So these midwives, instead of bringing death, they bring new life into the world, they could have been killed for their disobedience, but they chose to risk their lives for the sake of others. And this points us to Jesus, who gave his life for us. So I praise God for their courage to step in and to save the little boys. And God rewarded them. He gave them families. Their faithfulness resulted in fruitfulness, okay? The people multiplied. They grew very, very strong. Now, in your lesson, you looked ahead to Exodus 12, where it says that there were how many men that came out of Egypt in the Exodus? 600,000. That was just men. So I asked you to think about how many it would be with women and children. Yeah, a couple of million people probably. And I want you to take a minute and ponder how many would it have been had the midwives not had the courage to step in. If they didn't do that, if they would have killed these baby boys, what would have happened to that generation of Israelites? It's sobering to think about, isn't it? But God was in control. And these midwives, they were deliverers too. We think of Moses as the deliverer here, you know, in the story of Exodus. But these are two women who did what God asked them to do. They feared God, and they were deliverers as well. Now, we're going to go back to uh, Genesis. Um, Remember the first lie? 
just in case you know you want to delve into more a little bit about how these midwives may have misled Pharaoh here, right? Remember the first lie where the serpent says, "Did God really say?" Right? You will not surely die, right? The serpent lied to Eve back in the garden, resulting in sin and death. But do you remember the promise that God made? What promise did He make? That He would send the seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent, right? But all along, what would that serpent be trying to do? Bruise the heel, right? He would be trying to extinguish the seed of the woman, okay? The people of Israel are part of that line. They're part of the seed. Satan is trying to extinguish them here, right? And who is the ultimate seed? Jesus, and we know that Jesus did triumph over the serpent at the cross. But in the process, there is this ongoing battle. And so it's no surprise that there is this going on in the book of Exodus. So what happens here is, you know, Satan wants the people of Israel to be wiped out. So Pharaoh is his instrument, and Pharaoh tries to wipe out the people of Israel. So he ups his campaign by saying that every male baby needs to be thrown into the Nile River. And this, ironically, is, it's, it's just, it's mind-blowing because the, the river was their source of life. That was their source of water. It was a source of life. It was even considered like a god to them. But he is saying, throw the babies into the river. And the river was also a place where the sewage would run off. You know, they would get rid of their garbage this way and it would just flow out to sea. And so the babies here are disposed of, or what he says is they're gonna be disposed of in a kind of a clean way. Throw them in the river, they'll be gone. We won't think of them anymore. There won't be piles of babies over in the, you know, the garbage dump. But just notice the contrast between God's command to be fruitful and multiply and what Pharaoh does. Pharaoh orders the opposite. He orders the killing of these babies. And this highlights one other way that the Pharaoh is just opposite of God. And we're gonna see this in the plagues, especially when we see this battle between God and Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt. And then, speaking of the plagues, when we come to the first one, do you, do you, do you know from your memory what the first plague is? It's the river, isn't it? Yeah, it's the river being turned to blood. And so I thought, you know, it's as if the Lord is saying, you ordered my sons dumped in the river, turned into a river of death. Okay then, here's your river of blood. You know, here's your first sign of judgment is gonna be on that river. But I'm getting ahead of myself. God's plan was to preserve his people and to provide a rescuer who would lead his people out of slavery. And ironically, he uses Pharaoh's own daughter as part of the process. And throughout the Bible, we see this, God reversing what seems to be certain death and bringing new life. Think about Noah, how he was saved, he and his family, through the flood. And Jonah, remember, saved by the, by the great fish and spit out three days later? And Jesus being in the tomb for three days and raised to new life. Well, now God has a plan for a deliverer, so we're getting to chapter two. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months when she could hide him no longer. She, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes, and she daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. 
Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant women, and she took it. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother, and Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. So the first thing I want you to notice here is that, is that Moses is raised in a godly home, all right? The house of Levi. If you know something about the Old Testament, you know that the, the tribe of Levi became the priestly tribe, okay? It's not yet, but, but that this is a godly home. And Moses' mother is a woman who trusts the Lord. Um, she's living here under this time under this cruel Pharaoh, and she finds herself pregnant again. Parenting takes courage under normal circumstances, but especially in this time. But God provided and God enabled the mother of Moses to just lean into his love and his goodness, even when she didn't have control over her circumstances. And so when the, when the time came, um, God protected her little boy and kept him hidden for three months safely in her arms. So that was a sweet, sweet thing. Hebrews 11.23 says, By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Can you imagine? I would be afraid. But then the time came when she couldn't hide him any longer. And so she makes him a basket. All right? It says here, that she, she made for him a basket made of bulrushes and she daubed it with bitumen and pitch and she placed the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. All right, can you just imagine the pain, just that gut-wrenching pain that she must have felt when she put him in this little basket. She had carefully constructed it and don't think about like what we think of as like an Easter basket, you know, that maybe has a handle and has lots of holes in it that would probably sink. This was probably a, a box that was pretty sturdy and she had coated it. She had waterproofed it. It may have even had a cover over the top. Um, and then she had Miriam, his older sister, stay by the riverbank to watch him. I just think of other biblical women who have given up their children. Can you think of a few? We had two women that we talked about this summer in our study of prayer. Hannah, Hannah right? So she has Samuel, and she brings him to the priest to serve the Lord in the temple. Who's another one? Mary. Ma what did you say? Mary. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. It's Mary, you know, and she treasures these things in her heart. You know, she knows the, you know, the plan, and then she eventually sees him on the cross, you know, when, he's, when he, you know, has one of his other disciples care for his mother. It's beautiful. But now the Hebrew term that is used here for this basket that his mother made for him is actually the same word for ark. It's beautiful, okay? The same, the same word, you know, that God used to preserve Noah and his family was used here. And it makes sense because who's the author of both books? 
Moses, right? So he, he may be intentionally putting these words together so we would, all these centuries later, say, wow, that, that's cool. Now, by the, by the river, this, this was, I think, the, the, one of the, the verses that just, be, when he says, behold, the baby was crying. That to me, just as a mom, that just, that just breaks my heart. But it also moved the heart of Pharaoh's daughter. And even though she's not a part of the people of God, she has pity on him. You know, she has mercy. This is, this is what, you know, we, theologians refer to as common grace, like an unbeliever who, who is part of God's plan here. Grace extended, even though we, we don't know what her fa- how her father reacted. Um, we're not told anything of that, that story. And then, you know, another thing is just, you know, the, the sister, you know, Miriam, right? She is there. She's there watching. And she says, shall I go and call you a nurse? And I wonder, you know, we, we talked about this in, in our group, about whether or not this was a plan that was hatched ahead of time by Moses' mother and sister. Like, I, we're hoping this will happen. You know, we're putting the basket near where Pharaoh's daughter comes or if she was just a re- really resourceful young little girl who said, hey, I've got a great idea, you know, <laughs> I'll bring you to my mom, you know, so that, that, that another is a, it's a, just a sweet providence of God. Now Moses also gets a great education, all right, because it says here that, you know, the, the child grew, all right, and wh- what happened? She brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. So as, as Moses is brought into the palace of the Pharaoh, he's, he's getting the best of Egypt in terms of education. And just like Joseph, remember Joseph was hated by his brothers, and he eventually ends up in the palace in Egypt as part of God's plan. Moses also hated, you know, the people of Israel were hated by Pharaoh. He is also brought to the palace, and he's given this education as part of God's plan. They both play crucial roles in delivering the people of God. God meant it for good. Now, when Moses grows up, we're going to read this next section here, verses 11 through 15. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people, and he looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. You can see here who Moses identifies with, right? He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian, and he hid him in the sand. And when he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. I'm going to get to that in a minute. Okay, we see here in this section, Moses is relying on his own, maybe his education, his own wisdom, and he's being very impulsive here in his actions. And I think that's just a pointer for us that we should, we should go to the Lord in prayer before we act on something, especially when we're angry. You know, we might think that we're carrying out uh, a plan for justice, but we need to... We need to trust that God, he says, vengeance is mine, and we need to trust that. And so when we see something that is going on, we can prayerfully consider what steps we'll take, but let's not be like Moses who just kind of flies into a a rage here. And we know that after this that God sent Moses into the wilderness for 40 years to begin 
learning more from the Lord, right, on his, his wisdom. But we learn later that his impulsive behavior gets him in trouble again. You remember what happened with the rock. He doesn't obey God. He strikes the rock instead of speaking to it. And God says, because you did that, you're not going to take my people into the promised land. So, so that's a lesson that I think we can learn from this as well. It says here that he sat down by a well. And you might just say, well, that's just something in passing here. But in Genesis, there are many betrothals or engagements that happen at a well. All right? Think back to, uh, to Isaac and Rebecca is, is just one of them. Okay, now, th so Moses, he meets his future wife here, Zipporah. But think ahead with me to John 4. Jesus sits down at a well, doesn't he? He meets the woman from Samaria, and he gives the woman living water, gives him her, himself, right? So she finds satisfaction and love, knowing this is the Messiah, that she had been looking for love in all the wrong places. And so, you know, the, the Bible refers to us as the bride of Christ, betrothed to him. This is another way that the story of Moses points us to Jesus. The next section here. Now, the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs of water to their father's flock, to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Ruel, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, well, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter, Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. So Moses here, he's intervening to save these seven daughters, just like Jesus saved the woman at the well. And so Ruel, when he hears this, later he's called Jethro, just so you know, he's got two different names, right? So he has seven daughters. This kind of reminds me of that old movie in the 50s, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. Okay, well here, Ruel, he has seven daughters, and what does he need? Seven husbands. <laughs> and you let one get away. Wait, go get him, bring him to dinner. You know, how could you just let him go, girls? All right, so we hear that Moses starts a family. He marries Zipporah. He has a son that he names Gershom, which means sojourner in a foreign land. Because Moses, writing this, he, 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 he's remembering 40 years he's been in the wilderness with these people. He's been a sojourner. Now, I'm going to go through some ways that Moses points to Jesus, and I'm sorry I'm running late, a little bit late. Deuteronomy 8.15 says, Moses told the people that, a, that the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers, it is to him that you shall listen. And Hebrews 3.3 says, Jesus is worthy of more glory than Moses. So ways that Moses points us to Jesus. Jesus was the target of a cruel king, Herod, who sought to kill him just as Pharaoh tried to kill Moses as a baby. Jesus' parents were directed to take him where? To Egypt. An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child and to destroy him. And he rose and he took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. 
This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Okay? Now, Moses' mother hid him from Pharaoh, and when Pharaoh's daughter found him, saved him, he too was taken into Egypt, and he became her son. He became a prince of Egypt. And Jesus is our prince of peace, says um, Isaiah 9, 5. Moses tried to save his Hebrew brother just as Jesus came to seek and save his own people, the lost. Jesus was also rejected by his own people, just as Moses was. And, you know, this also points, I was just thinking of this more this morning, and I realized that what, what Moses did in this section was Moses married a Gentile woman, you know, as he was rejected by his own people. And that's a type of Jesus as well, because who are we as the bride of Christ? We are from every tribe and nation and people. We are his bride. So that's another way that this section points us to Jesus. So I challenge you in every lesson, in every passage, look and see ways that, that um, we see Jesus. Now, Jesus left his throne in heaven to come as a man, and he spent 40 days in the wilderness at the start of his ministry. And Moses left the palace, and he ran to the wilderness where he spent 40 years before God called him. And then we've already talked about how Moses sat down at the well. Moses also learned to be a shepherd. He was going to shepherd sheep in Midian. He was also going to shepherd the flock, God's people, out of Egypt. And that points to Jesus, who is our good shepherd. All right, the last few verses. During those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant. He remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob and God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Okay, God was hearing what was going on. He knew. Now, Romans 8 expands on this. Romans 8 says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Groaning is the cry of painful childbirth. Exodus is the story of labor and delivery. It's the birth of a new nation. God is fulfilling his promises to Abraham that he would be the father of a great nation. So are you catching on to why Moses told us so much about the midwives in this opening section of Exodus? Yahweh, the Lord, he is our midwife. He is the midwife overseeing the birth of a new nation. He is our deliverer too. And just as he heard their groaning, he kept his covenant with Abraham. He's birthing a new people. He's keeping his promise. And he keeps his promises to us as well. So maybe you feel that you have been in labor for a long time. Maybe you've been wrestling with hopelessness or guilt or brokenness or whatever it is. You've been waiting on the Lord in a painful circumstance. Psalm 130 that we sang earlier tells us that with him there is forgiveness, steadfast love, and redemption. God is sovereign, 
And he is good. He is near to the brokenhearted. He will bring his perfect justice, either here and now or ultimately later. And he is at work to call us to look to him and to wait for him. So I would just encourage you, God knows your story. He knows your name. He knows the world that you're living in. He knows your past, your present, your future. He knows your blessings, and he knows your bitter circumstances. He sees. He sees your suffering, and he hears your cry for help. He wants to reveal himself to you and to have you know him and trust him as your faithful redeemer. Let's close in prayer. Lord, I thank you that nothing, nothing in our lives are, are unheard or forgotten or unseen or unknown. I thank you that you are faithful, that you can be, you can be trusted. We thank you that you are still on the throne. Lord, I, I just I thank you for Psalm 9, 9 and 10 that you brought to my, to my eyes this morning that says, the Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O oh Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. So Lord, help us to trust you. Help us to just lean on your strong, everlasting arms and your love, and your, which is so steadfast. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.